Here's where we've been, all these religions so far, Scientology, Judaism, Christian science, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Last week, Morgan talked to us about Malawi. We also spent one week talking about just where do all these religions come from. Uh, all that stuff is online. Tonight, we talk about Mormonism. Let's dive into Mormonism. First, there's really been a lot of attention paid to Mormonism in the last year, especially since Mitt Romney kind of ran for office. Suddenly, like, everyone was asking new questions. So there's definitely been a renewed focus. People just asking more. People just wanting to know if it's okay to believe in Mormon beliefs. So you hear from the Mormon church more and more, we are a Christian church. And tonight we're going to evaluate some of that. But that's constantly, in fact, there's a couple books that have come out from the Mormon church that try to establish that they are Christian. Okay? Here's something else. It's the largest growth is coming from Protestant groups. There's 300,000 new converts into Mormonism every year. They have 65,000 to 75,000 active missionaries working to further the cause of Mormonism. They are, in fact, the largest missionary sending organization in the world. They outdo some of the mainline churches, all of them combined. If you take four of the mainline churches, they actually outdo them, four churches combined. 55% of that growth is happening overseas. Right now, there's about 13 million Mormons, and they think that by the year 2014, that number is going to double. Now, if you look at the statistics on Christianity, it's kind of going the other way, right? So that's why it's important to pay attention to this one religion, because they're making these increasing claims, hey, we are Christian. They're actually making claims that we are the true Christian church, and they're growing, and they have tremendous efforts behind them. They're also one of the wealthiest churches. The wealth of the Mormon church probably ranks in the top three or four organizations in the world in terms of religious organizations with wealth. Billions and billions of dollars. And the thing about the Mormon church that's different than many of our churches, it's united. It has a, a central hierarchy and structure. And Mormons give a lot of money to their own church, and the church has vast holdings as well. They're involved in all sorts of business. I was just doing a little bit of research to find out. You guys probably have heard that like, they own Marriott Corporation, the hotel chain, but they also own... A number of other large corporations, they have vast stock holdings in many of them. They own lots of land. They own lots of prime real estate. They own like 35 radio stations. I mean, they are a church that has vast business dealings. So you put those things together, a church that's primarily drawing from nominal Protestants who don't really know their faith very much, but they're coming mostly from Protestant churches. That's their biggest area of growth. A church that's expected to double in the next 10 years. A church that has all this money to fuel it, and a church that is the largest missionary sending organization in the world, you start to see, we should probably check out what they think, what they teach, what they believe. Let's talk about what Mormons believe. I want to read you something that from the Mormon Articles of Faith. And, you know, we hear this claim a lot that Mormons are Christian, so I started looking into, like, let's just take their basic faith beliefs and see if we could get an idea of what it is. Here, listen to some of these and tell me if these sound at all strange to you. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and for Adam's transgressions. We believe that the atonement of Christ, that, I'm sorry, through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience of the laws and the ordinances of the gospel. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy. 
and that by laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. We believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. We believe the Bible to be the word of God so far as it's translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. Other than that last sentence I read, do you see anything weird in there? Does that sound like maybe you could be reading like the, the pew card out of some church that you just walked into and has a statement of belief? You just go, oh, I'm just going to pick that up and read it. I'm going to kind of stop there for a moment because that's one of the most confusing things that happens when you come to study Mormonism. What I just read to you are the articles of faith of the Mormon church. Going, There's a few more. But on its face, if you just did what most people do, you start skimming the few of them. Or I went to mormon.org where you can kind of learn more about the church. And I started reading these and I thought, yeah, if I didn't dig any deeper than what I just read to you or what you read on the website, this is a great church. They believe pretty much the same things I believe. The difficulties arise when you take one step deeper to understand what do they mean by these words. Let's start by looking at what are the differences, for example. Here's one. God is your Father in heaven. How many people vote for that? Yeah? God is your Father in heaven? Anyone disagree? But you have to understand what they mean when they say that, for example, to understand the doctrinal differences so we can understand a little bit more about Mormon theology. God is your Father in heaven. We call God Heavenly Father because he is the Father of our spirits and we are created in his image. God has a body and looks like yours. Though his body is immortal, perfected, and has glory beyond description. That's from Mormon.org. Just copied it right off their website. That's what they mean when they talk about God. God was a man. God has a body. Yes, it's a perfected body. And by the way, they're not talking about Jesus. Notice they use Heavenly Father. Another doctrine of Mormon theology that we'll see over and over is that Heavenly Father bore spirit children that existed before this earth was populated. That's pre-existence. And we'll see that. But right now, let's just focus on God. Here from Doctrine and Covenants, which you'll see in a little bit, is actually part of their scriptural text. Yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth. Notice it's an earth, not the earth. The same as Jesus himself did. And I will show it from the Bible. This is Joseph Smith talking Doctrines and Covenants. This is contrasted with our own views of God. For example, if you've kind of lapsed on what those might be. Here's a couple of them. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23.19. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 92. Why is it important that from everlasting to everlasting he's God? Because the Mormon theology teaches that God was a man who became God. So we see right from the start, we might be talking about a different God. Another claim that we just want to point out. Mormons adamantly claim that they're monotheistic. There's a couple differences I want to highlight. I think the proper term is henotheistic for Mormons because first we have to distinguish the Trinity. We believe in a triune God, three in one. Mormons actually believe in three separate gods who have different purposes, but they are bodily different, except for the Holy Spirit who doesn't have a body. God has a body, Jesus has a body, Holy Spirit doesn't have a body, but they're three separate deities. 
So they're actually not Trinitarian, they're tritheistic. They believe in three gods. So you can see there's God the Father, who they refer to as Elohim, and in their earliest theology, it was actually Adam. But that was modified. Brigham Young said that Adam was God. He's the one that started the whole thing. He was God. That doctrine is now disputed. But you have God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, all of whom were once men and became God. They ascended step by step through righteousness until they attained the status of God. And they got to rule this planet. So you can say they're tritheistic, but the reason that I'm going to make the claim that Mormons are polytheistic is because they actually believe there are other gods. When you ask Mormons directly, like, is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit the only gods, they might say yes, but what they're really doing is saying yes on this earth. Because Mormons believe that there are an infinite number of other earths that have gods similar to our gods. So actually, God the Father, Elohim, or Jesus Christ is just one or two gods among many other gods. But their claim is, we're just not concerned with those other planets, we're really only talking about this planet. Because we don't really know all the other ones and where they are all at. That concept is definitely an undercurrent, there are other infinite planets with gods as well, so it creates a polytheistic religion. Yeah? So like on this planet, the whole idea of Christ dying and being crucified and all that, that was just the idea of our gods for this planet that thought, hey, this is what it looks like for our planet? Like, I don't understand how Christ fits in. That's right. Elohim devised a plan for his spirit children. In Mormon theology, Elohim used to be Adam, but is now God the Father, who they refer to as Heavenly Father, had intercourse with a celestial wife. Celestial is the highest level of heaven in Mormonism. Spirit children live in what's called pre-existence. So as bodily babies are born, the spirit children go into the babies, and they live their life here on earth. Elohim designed this plan for salvation for his spirit children, specifically for earth, and used Jesus' atonement, we'll see how he used it, to help discipline his spirit children, so they might return through the steps of righteousness and live together with him forever in a bodily resurrection in the celestial kingdom, if possible. And we'll end with how the levels of heaven work, but that's basically the plan. So yes, the short answer to your question is, he designed it specifically for his spirit children living on this planet. And he himself, where he came from, he was probably the spirit child of some other place where he descended or ascended through the different places of righteousness till he got a planet that he was able to rule, and that's his plan for his planet. That's why the claim of polytheism comes in, because it means that there are other gods with other plans and other planets, but Mormons say we're not concerned with those people, because we're really concerned with the story of this planet, what's going on here. We are the spirit children of Heavenly Father. That would be probably the way they would answer it. Looking at the Trinitarian thing versus tritheism, just to give you an idea that I'm not just saying that, here's some quotes. I found a bunch of quotes from different people. Stephen Robinson from Brigham Young University. There is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Ghost, all three of whom are fully defined, and Latter-day Saints believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the statement right there. Now, Stephen Robinson is a guy who's written one of the most compelling books on why Mormons are Christians. He's a Mormon who's trying to establish that Mormons are Christians. So he wants to show we believe in the Trinity. Okay? Let's look at what Joseph Smith said in his originating works for the church. Many men say there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. I say this is a strange God anyhow. Three in one and one in three? I will preach on the plurality of gods. 
I wish to declare that I've always, and in all congregations when I have preached on the subject of the deity, it has been on the plurality of gods. So that was Joseph Smith speaking and explaining his doctrine on the Trinity. Philip. I have a question because I mean, like, I mean, you mentioned this, and like, I know I've heard different aspects about like the Mormon theology being modified throughout time. And so, how much are you able to look at something Joseph Smith said and say, "Well, he said this"? Uh, is that what you like? Is that what Mormonism believes now, or can you? Is some of what Joseph Smith says now to say, "Well, like, we can ignore that. We don't really believe that." Like, or do they sort of revere him and say everything he said was true? Or it's both, and that's the, the, the difficulty. They certainly revere him because he is the prophet that received the revelation. But in the tradition of the church, that office of the prophet gets handed down. There are some Mormons who believe that it's only what the latest person has said that matters, even if it contradicts earlier things. But then that kind of denigrates the status of this person who really received this revelation from God. So you have a real tension in Mormonism where they have to affirm that God was really speaking through these people. I mean, they believe that the prophet, when he speaks, the president of the church, is speaking with the authority of God, having told him these things. Of course that would not make sense if later on you could change that. But that's exactly what happens, is that over time these doctrines change. So somebody, I'll say it this way, it's hard to say, well, Joseph Smith said that that's not really true, we don't believe that anymore. But Mormons do say that. Like, you might confront them and say, isn't it true that you believe there are a plurality of gods? They go, no, we don't believe that. If you hand him a piece of paper, it goes, do you know that Joseph Smith said this? It would probably perplex them first because they probably haven't heard it. But then after that, they would probably say, well, the current interpretation is this. And that leaves a huge problem with what do you do with Joseph Smith and this doctrine of prophecy. Brigham Young, by the way, boxed him in a number of ways. He made a lot of statements that really boxed him in that they had to later change. Again, what do you do? These are two big people in the faith. How do you get around them? Didn't they split anyway after Smith died? And Brigham Young was one of the leaders, and then there's one other guy, and one of them ended up being the super, like, polygamistic. There's a number of splits that came in the church. Right after Joseph Smith died, there were a number of splits. Brigham Young took the majority of the people eventually and moved them to Utah. There were some offshoots that, you're right, to this day hold on to a more fundamentalist interpretation where they're trying to hang on to what Joseph Smith said early on. Yeah, polygamy you raise is one of them, which we'll discuss briefly, but like, for example, you reference that they gave up on polygamy, but to state it accurately, what happened was Joseph Smith died in 1844, I want to say, okay? Mormonism received a revelation from God in 1890 that polygamy was no longer allowed. And that was the same year that the United States said to Utah, like, if you continue to practice polygamy, you can't be a state. So... But yes, that, that's the problem that comes up, and I'm trying not to poke too much fun at it because you'll see that over and over this happens. So there's a very small part of Mormonism that you guys probably just saw in that whole thing that happened in Texas uh, with the compound, the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints. They still try to hang on to the original teachings, but that's not to say that there aren't even contradictions going back that far. I think they just thought, look, you guys are doing things for political expediency, and we're not going to be part of it. Okay. How about Jesus Christ? We've looked at the Trinity, we've looked at the nature of God, let's look at Jesus Christ. Because in those articles of faith, it sounded like they had you know, a belief in Jesus, the atonement. This is from what Mormons think of Christ. It's a publication of the church. Christ is our Redeemer and our Savior. Except for him, there would be no salvation and no redemption. And unless men come unto him and accept him as their Savior, they cannot have eternal life in his presence. 
think we could kind of agree on that, right? We would say, yeah, we're with you. But let me point out what they mean by this. And this is the part where we start to understand who Jesus is that they're talking about. First, in Mormonism, Jesus is the firstborn among billions of spirit children that were created by the sexual union of God and his celestial wife. I just alluded to that pre-existence that they have. So Jesus, his special place is given to him because he's the firstborn of all those spirit children. Second, he may be greater than all the other people on the earth, but that doesn't account for the other earths that are out there. So their place for Jesus, let's make sure, is clear. He's just the firstborn, but he's not God. In fact, if you look at this chart, I've kind of broken down how they look at Jesus and how we look at Jesus. Maybe some of you have forgotten. Here's some things to look at, for example. In Mormonism, he's a created being. He's the firstborn of all those spirit children. All right? He's the brother of Lucifer. I know a lot of people have heard that. Let me, let me kind of debunk it partially and talk about it. A lot of people think Mormonism is crazy. They believe he's the brother of Lucifer. And Mormonism believes that Jesus is the brother of every created thing on this planet. Lucifer is just one more of those billion spirit children that were born. All right, so all of us are actually the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's Mormon theology. In Christian theology, he's the uncreated God. No one birthed him into existence. He always was. Read Colossians 1. Mormonism, one of many gods. Christianity, he's the second person of the Trinity. He is the supremacy. He is God himself. Again, Colossians 1. In Mormonism, he's conceived through sexual union between God and Mary. If you listen to Mormon theology, they say we believe in the miraculous birth of Jesus. If you listen to that, that doesn't mean they believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, at least not the way we think of virgin birth. He was conceived through a sexual union between Mary and Elohim. In our theology, he is conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, there is no sexual union between him and the Heavenly Father. Philip? I'm just trying to understand that. Like, is, I mean, didn't God have the celestial wife and made the spirit baby Jesus? And then he came down and he specifically created the body of Jesus that the spirit baby would go into. Jesus has these two things going on that are special. He's the firstborn, and then when there's a body going to be prepared for him, Elohim comes down and sleeps with Mary to create the actual physical body that this spirit child is going to go into. In Mormonism, he lived a perfect life on earth. That's how he ascended again to prove his righteousness. Christianity, of course, he was eternally sinless and perfect. Does that mean that the spirit children, while their spirit children can sin, or did he live like previous lives? No, the spirit children can sin. And actually, the story is that Lucifer wanted to be the atonement. He wanted to be basically Jesus. He's like, how come I can't get to go down there and die on a cross, Dad? So he got angry when he wasn't given that ability. And his rebellion came in pre-existence. He and a third of the spirit children rebelled in pre-existence. And that's one of the reasons why they weren't given bodies. But another part of Mormon theology says that when they are given bodies, they get to be the black people. So we're gonna, there's some troubling parts about Mormonism, very Americentric, white-centric theologies. And, and we'll get to some of those later because they believe the Indians also were given their dark skin because of the rebellions against God. So 
Interesting. In Mormonism, again, I was looking for lots of reference to this, but there's evidence that Jesus was a married polygamist. I don't think they claim that on earth, but I couldn't find the reference to it right. Of course, we believe that he was celibate, monogamist. He was unmarried. Just real briefly on this, Jesus is the brother of Satan. Just so I'm not making this up. Again, this is from a Shore Foundation, a Mormon publication. Both the scriptures and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father and therefore spirit brothers. Jesus was Lucifer's older brother. I know a lot of people use that for sensational purposes in the church. Everybody is Jesus' brother, apparently. So we shouldn't get tweaked about that. But I don't think there's anything in our theology. Remember, Lucifer in our theology was a fallen angel, not the same creation. All right? Certainly not God and certainly not human. So a little different. Jesus is someone who needed salvation. Here's some quotes for you. The plan of salvation with Elohim, which Elohim designed, was to save his children, Christ included. Neither Christ nor Lucifer could of themselves save anyone. Joseph Fielding Smith, he was one of the presidents and prophets of the Mormon church. The Mormon church, by the way, has the president as the main person, and he has 12 apostles that are constantly there, just like Jesus had apostles. They maintain 12 apostles at all times. Here's another one from Bruce McConkie, who's one of the leading theologians in the, in the Mormon church. He's now deceased, but he's written most of the volumes of theology. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to earth to work out his own salvation. He had not received the fullness until he got a resurrected body. Seems to me that directly contradicts Colossians 1, which says, In him the fullness of the Father resides. Philip. How was he able to work out his own salvation? Was it because he had this special body, or... Just he got lucky and was able to not sin? No, he was living a righteous life. Mormons stress righteousness. And his atoning sacrifice did something. And we'll talk in a second about what it did. But he was at least able to follow Elohim's plan, which is that he lived a righteous and perfect life. He offered himself up for the atonement. Then he receives the first to be resurrected bodily. They do acknowledge that he was resurrected bodily. And so now that he's fully resurrected, having lived this righteous life, he can now live in the celestial kingdom with Elohim. You might see these words, and you started to hear some of them maybe when we were looking at the articles of faith. You'll hear these words used by Mormons. Grace, justification, sanctification, repentance. You're like, good, I'm hearing Christian words. In all cases, all of them include a measure of works. Now, when I first looked at this, I thought, you know, I don't even know if I want to bring this up, because if, if I took some sentence out of James, which we were doing a Bible study on James on Wednesday night, and just grab that out of there, you could almost make the case that Christians believe that there has to be a measure of works in our faith. So it didn't seem that sensational to me, but I'll just read you a couple of the quotes so you can see that really they believe in works in a whole different way. Mankind is damned by the faith alone doctrine. Here's another one. Faith alone will not save men, neither will faith and works save them, unless they are works of the right kind. So you're constantly on this progression of righteousness in the Mormon church. Grace, which is an outpouring of the mercy, love, and condescension of God, is received not without works, not without righteousness, not without merit, but by obedience and faith. Okay? I mean, it just they stress this more and more. The very atoning sacrifice itself was wrought out of the Son of God so that men might be justified. That is, so they could do the things which will give them eternal life in the celestial realm. That last quote, I think, kind of captures it the best. In Christianity, Jesus on his own gave the sacrifice. No one wrought it out of him. 
wasn't done against his will. It wasn't like wrenched out of his hands. And also, it wasn't so that we could do the right things to get to heaven. It was everything by itself. I just contrast them with some things in the Bible for you to keep in mind. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life, John 5.24. I tell you the truth, he who believes has eternal life, John 6.47. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, Romans 3.28. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Romans 11.6, a great verse to use. Because again, their grace is steeped in works. It needs works to be grace. And here, Romans is clear. Grace would no longer be grace if we had to do works. A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.16. And another one I think is really, really directly on. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, which is again what they're constantly striving for to do the righteous acts. Titus says he has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3.5. So we have a different concept of grace, justification, sanctification. The words sound very similar, and it's easy for us to go, yeah, that sounds like we're on the same page. Okay, how about the atonement of Christ? Where's our differences there? I mean, here it is again. This is the one that sounds so good. Because Heavenly Father loves us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to voluntarily suffer and pay for your sins, pain, sickness, and sorrow. Through his grace and the mercy of his atonement, the most important event in the history of the world, he can help you in your trials and relieve you of the guilt and shame that result from your sins. That could be said by anybody. That could be said by any radio preacher, like, believe in Jesus, he'll take away your sin, your sorrow. Do you want to accept him? Come on up. Let's go. Come on. Come on. Let's come up right now. It sounds just like the things that we might say in a church. But here's the continuation of that very same quote. Though he paid for your sins, Jesus did not eliminate your agency or personal responsibility. He will not make you clean against your will. You've got to, in our idea, well, you've got to believe in him. But in their idea, you've got to start doing those things that make you righteous. Yeah? Uh, I just had a question about that statement. If, uh... He paid for our sins, and how are we still responsible? What did he pay for exactly? Let me tell you what he did. What he did is he gave us the opportunity to get on this road. Because in their theology, you need to be working at righteousness. Some of you already suffer from this in this room. You feel like, I, I received Christ, but I need to earn it. So you might also like the Mormon faith, because they'll agree with you. You need to constantly be earning it. And it doesn't come to you unless you earn it. In fact, there's some quotes that say, the more righteous you are, the more grace you get. Okay, so there's clearly this proportional measure. Yeah. So is Jesus more just like an example? Because we're just like him, according to the Mormons. We're all the, whatever, you know, that whole thing. He was born. So can we live a sinless life too? Like without Jesus? Can we be righteous like how he did it? Like what's the point in believing in him? Or is it just an example? Or It's more than an example, but it's not quite that he pays for your sins. It's somewhere in the middle. So his atonement is important. And you need to believe in him, okay? But you have to believe in the Mormon him, and you have to believe in him. So that's important. They'll say you have to believe in Jesus. I mean, you see those quotes, that belief in Jesus is central. It's the most important thing, the atonement. But it's not a pure, like, if you believe in Jesus like the Bible says, that's it. It's more of a you believe in Jesus, and that gives you the opportunity to become righteous enough to be saved. 
And saved, I got to put in quotes, because you're going to see in a moment that even people who don't know about Mormonism and who don't even, who are not, are still going to get to some level. So let me move forward a little bit and get to those pieces and see if it'll make more sense. Okay? See, here again, like, we believe that it's Christ's atonement that saved us, but we must endure for the good works. We must do good works if his atonement is to take effect. You see that? So it's like, yes, we believe that it's his atonement that saves us, but we have to do the good works for it to take effect. It's by the atonement of Christ that we are saved, but it is necessary that we keep the commandments. You see, there's always that second part that shows that it's just not, Jesus is just not enough by himself. You have to do the other part. And that's why you'll see that Mormons very outwardly are doing certain things to, you know, it's very important that they stay on this righteous path. Okay? Many times if you talk to a Mormon and you say to them, hey, you know that Jesus died for your sins, they might agree with you and say, yes. But they're, also talking about there's a second part. They don't believe that that's complete in and of itself. So he just gives them the opportunity to work out their salvation. Okay, yeah. Christians argue that the, you're not truly saved and have salvation, though, unless like, you're uh, repenting from your sins and that your works will show it, right? So um, like, do they believe in you won't get in heaven just for believing exactly? Right, no. I know what you're asking because it's the same struggle I had. We ourselves talk about if you just believe and do nothing else, that that may not be enough, right? We struggle the same way. I want to make a distinction that this is a little different because they're going beyond that and not just saying like, you know, what we struggle with, is that really faith, right? That's what we're arguing about. You know, like if you have faith but show no work, if you have faith and do nothing, if you have faith and just live a sinless, sinful life and totally ignore the faith that you have, do you really have faith? That's what our debate's about. Theirs is clearly... Even if you have faith, you still got to do this stuff. Even if it's genuine faith, you still got to do this stuff. So they're going a step beyond. Like if the worst thing about the Mormon church was that they believe that there's some level of righteousness that you have to do after you attain salvation, it's the right salvation, I probably wouldn't be so stressed out about it. Because there's other, like you said, denominations and stuff that stress that very heavily. So I want to kind of leave that discussion because it's just one difference, but it's not really the main point that I want to go into. All right, you guys keep talking about heaven. Let's talk about it for a moment. There are three levels of heaven. So I'm reading again right from the Mormon webpage. After you're a judge, you will live in a state of glory because everyone's works and righteousness vary. Heaven includes different kingdoms of degree. The highest, the best one you could get into, the gold standard is the celestial kingdom. There's even levels in the celestial kingdom. Basically, the celestial kingdom is for Mormons. They write it this way. Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ reside in the celestial kingdom. If you live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a, quote, that's a defined term, meaning like you live the Mormon way, and you're cleansed from your sin by the atonement, again, the Mormon atonement, you'll receive a place in this, the highest kingdom. Once you get to the celestial kingdom, you're not automatically a god. You have to progress. There's like three levels even within the celestial kingdom. But at the highest one, you get to have your planet, I think. Uh, the, to- the terrestrial kingdom, that's where we Christians get to go. So you didn't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, again, the defined Mormon term of gospel of Jesus Christ, but you lived a good life. So you could be of any religion. If you lived a good life, you just didn't. So people who didn't know about Mormonism, people who were deluded, you get to go there. I don't know what the difference in benefits are. I don't know like if you know, like one's a hotel, one's a motel. Like I, haven't, I couldn't get into it enough to figure out like how bad it would be if we were wrong and we ended up in the terrestrial kingdom. But, you know, like what that means. And then there's the telestial kingdom, 
which sounds like the worst place, those who continue in their sins and do not repent until after they have died will eventually receive a place in the telestial kingdom. It, the word eventually means there is a concept of purgatory in Mormonism where you can go and work through stuff. So if you don't get it right in this life, you might get some shot in the next life, and then you'll eventually end up where all the thieves and the other guys go. That's the telestial kingdom. Yeah. Um, it said that he wanted to save his children. What exactly is it that he saved, wants them to save? He wants them to live with him in the celestial kingdom if possible. You'll see that the idea is to continually progress to the point where you get the maximum righteousness you can so you can dwell in the highest level of kingdom you can get to. That's where Elohim lives. He lives in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. So he'd love for his children, after they've been disciplined through this life on earth, to eventually be bodily resurrected and join him there. That's what he would ultimately like. So did he, how did the children get here exactly? The easiest way to think of it is they get beamed in, right? I mean, they're living in pre-existence, okay? And as soon as a baby is born, I think is the way that it works, they literally, their spirit goes into that body and they live on this earth. And by the way, my understanding is that only happens once. There's not a reincarnation concept at all. It's just like one time. So this is it. You get that one shot. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. Let's look at their scriptures. First of all, what are the Mormon scriptures? We have the King James Bible, and I put a little asterisk next to it, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. Those books make up the scriptures in Mormonism. Now, the King James Version, very important in Mormonism, although Joseph Smith kind of translated his own version, he made some changes to the King James Version to support Mormon theology. In fairness, the church doesn't know what to do with his translation of the King James Bible. But they've got kind of a conundrum. I went on the website to look at what version of the King James Bible the Mormon church officially publishes, and... I started tracking key verses that I know Joseph Smith changed. And on the website, there's no changes. So like, for example, I put up the King James Bible electronically on this side, and I put up the Mormon King James Bible, and I tracked some key passages, and I spent about a half an hour, so I didn't do an exhaustive search of the whole Bible, but I couldn't find any differences. So today, the church is not using the Joseph Smith translation of the King James Bible. But notice in the Articles of Faith, when I read them, they had this key clause there. It says that we believe in the Bible to the degree that it's been translated accurately. They have that proviso. So if you point out a verse that goes, well, what about this verse? It's in your Bible. It's on your website. They'll go, well, that wasn't translated accurately. The Book of Mormon is a subsequent revelation that shows that this was corrupted over time. All right, so here we have another religion that believes that the Bible has been corrupted over time, and they're the new revelation. So Book of Mormon... New Revelation, we'll talk in a minute about how it came about. Doctrine and Covenants is more stuff that Joseph Smith wrote about the church, the doctrine and the church itself. Pearl of Great Price, he incorporates some other scriptures that he writes, some other books that he translates, and he tells his story a little bit more. Those are all considered scripture. Plus, you have all the revelations that came to the prophets. Here's a quote about the revelation. The presidents and prophets give a living scripture and speak with the authority of God. Nothing a Mormon president says can be wrong. That's a quote from Mormon theology. So, for example, when Brigham Young said that, <laughs> I don't even want to, I don't even want to say half the things that Brigham Young said, but one of them I think was, you know, he had this whole theology about how 
because the Negroes were people, they were like spirit children that upset God or something. They could never be in the priesthood. They could never fully be Mormons. They had this whole theology of just staying away from any dark-skinned people. And then it wasn't until 1978 that the revelation came from God that that was now to change and that the whole world was open for them to go after. So, yeah. It talks about uh, in Mormonism about the commandments. Now, are their commandments different? They're, they're different in the fact that they add on to some of the things that we have and change some of them. Part of the critique, though, is where do you find them? Like some of you might be more uh, familiar with some of their uh, conduct commandments, like you don't drink caffeine and you don't do certain things, right? But you got to go looking through the doctrines and covenants and a pearl of great price, which are the later scriptures, to find that because I don't think that's in the Book of Mormon, for example. And there's all these other pronouncements that come out, so they might not even be in their main scriptures. Those may be pronouncements that came out of the church later. Yeah? You seem to be saying there's different people that come and replace old theology and then all these new different books. Like, um, and then we also talked about that there are different branches maybe that come out here and there. But like, is it, would it be clear that you said, hey, is this theology that the Mormon Church believes and it would be consistent? And so you could stick to it that this is something they believe in? Or They are internally inconsistent, but I'm not talking about the other sects when I say they disagree. I'm talking about the main branch of Mormonism. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the main church. And... It itself is replacing doctrine on a going forward basis. The question is, do you believe the older stuff or the newer stuff? Most of them would say you believe the newer stuff, but like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't answer the question of what do you do with some of the older stuff. Now, I don't want to say that the whole thing is being redone, but there's enough points where you'll see that there's some things that definitely are different. So which one do you hang on to? Most of the people say, well, the current revelation is what we have in front of us. So, like, they don't have... Or they don't say necessarily that a previous Mormon president was wrong. They just say, well, God changes things as he wills back and forth. And that they don't have a problem with. So they don't, they don't believe that like, the Heavenly Father is like, unchangeable? Well, they clearly don't think he's unchangeable because he used to be a man. Okay? Or they just are comfortable with a lot more ambiguity about stuff that people said before. By the way, a lot of them try to explain it away. Some of the things that Brigham Young said, some of the things that Joseph Smith said were terribly troubling for the church. And there are some things that they set on record that the church this day just, I'm sure, wishes never got on record. And so they're trying very hard to explain those things away, and it doesn't work. All right, let me just show you some things from the Mormon King James Bible. I mean, these are accurate translations from our King James. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, the faith is counted as righteousness. This is a verse from the King James Bible that says it's not works, it's faith. It's found in their version of the King James. I copied this off their website to make sure that I was getting it right. Again, I had cited Romans 11.6. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. We looked at that verse. It's cited in their Bible. Same way. So a lot of times you just have to say, like, I don't get it. I mean, your Bible that you rely on, that you have on your website, says these things. I cited Titus 3.5 a little bit ago. Again, not by works of righteousness. It's right there in their, in their version of King James well. So the truth is, I'm a little confused. I don't know how they square those because if they're not using the Joseph Smith one, which by the way, in Romans 4, 5, for example, the Joseph Smith translation says, but to him that worketh not, and then they say, but believeth not on him. He actually inserted a word to make it say the opposite. 
Okay, that's what the Joseph Smith translation is like. Not like he went back to the original languages and retranslated them. He just changed it. You know, it was like like not. Okay, <laughs> and thought that fits better with my theology. So that's the Joseph Smith translation. That's why it's kind of controversial for the church because that would never stand up to any kind of textual criticism. Yeah. Do you have any kind of linguistic knowledge about the old languages at all? To my knowledge, zero. All right, let's look at Joseph Smith and figure out who he is. First, he was the fourth son of Joseph Smith Sr. Joseph Smith Sr. and Joseph Smith Jr. were known in the area for being treasure hunters. You know, guys hear the, the, the term gold digger or money digger? Like, we're thinking of a chick these days. Back then, that was a literal profession. You went around looking for treasure, okay? You were a gold digger or money digger, but here's the way they did it. They did it through occult practice. They had these things called seer stones that were like New Age crystals. And I, I went on for a long time trying to figure out how a seer stone worked because everyone talks about it, but nobody described it. Sometimes Wikipedia is the greatest resource ever. They actually had an article on it and showed people doing it. So let me tell you what a seer stone is. It's a stone like this big, and you take off your hat, you put it in the hat, and then you put your face like this to obscure the light, and then you see visions through it. What's, what I don't understand is, I don't know how the light gets in for you to see anything if you put your face in the hat. But maybe you kind of put it in front of your hat, like you dim it. And you're supposed to dim the stone, and then you see things, right? So Joseph Smith and his dad were running all over the county, telling people there's treasure here, there's treasure here, using astrology and using a seer stone. They never really made much money at the... No, they never found anything until he found the gold plates, all right? So that's Joseph Smith's background. Interesting that... There seems to be this occult practice in the background. Mormon Church for a long time has denied this, but it's very well documented in a lot of places, including Joseph Smith himself, who says that he used the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. So they can't get away from it. In fact, when I say it's documented, in 1826 he was actually convicted for using a seer stone. In New York at this time it was illegal to use occult practice like a seer stone. There's actually a court transcript of him admitting they was guilty, paying a fine for using a seer stone. So there's also the testimony of the witnesses, like I said, who said that he translated the golden plates. What are the golden plates? Let's kind of talk about how we get into this. In 1820, he's 15 years old. He's out in a field somewhere, and he's really stressed out and distressed because all of the sects of Christianity are arguing amongst themselves about who is right. And this is the one part of the story i got to tell you that really just goes, has anything changed? So here's a confused 15-year-old kid who's just really upset that every sect claims that it's the right way, and they're all fighting. So he goes out in the middle of the field and says, I don't get it. Are any of these right? I mean, God, tell me, are any of these right? And who should appear but the Lord God and Jesus? So God the Father and Jesus appear to him and basically answer his question and say, don't join any of them. The quote here, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me, God the Father, so apparently he saw God the Father in contradiction of the first chapter of John that says no one has seen the Father, but apparently he saw God the Father and said, all their creeds were an abomination in his sight. They're all drawn near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach doctrines and commandments of men having the form of godliness, but they deny the power. This is him writing and I think a pearl of great price when he's telling the story of how it happened. So he's out in the field, and this, tell, this is going on. Three years later, Moroni, who is the son of Mormon. Mormon is 
one of the characters in the Book of Mormon, his son Moroni, appears to him and tells him where the golden plates are buried. Now I put in here that it's, it might be Nephi who appeared to him because Joseph Smith in different places mixed it up a number of times as to who actually appeared to him. In some writings it was Nephi, in some writings it was Moroni who the Mormon church supports. They've had to cover up or delete a lot of the places in other scriptures where he said it was actually Nephi that appeared to him. Some type of angelic incarnation of these past people appeared to him and told him where the golden plates were buried. They also gave him what's called the Urim and the Thummim, which are, the best way to describe them is, they were golden spectacles that had crystals in them that he was going to put on and he could look at the golden plates and translate them. That's how this was going to happen. He was not allowed to translate them for four years. He was told that until you are righteous enough, you cannot approach them. He tried and he was thrown back on the ground. So it wasn't until 1827 that he was able to finally start translating the Book of Mormon. Now, this is what the Book of Mormon looks like in its original form in the golden plates. This is a replica. The golden plates were returned to the angel after they were translated. But from Joseph Smith's description, this is an actual Mormon reproduction of what the golden plates look like. It's amazing how they got the D-ring binder all the way back in 1827 in mind. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, but anyway, Joseph Smith described a D-ring binder that had gold plates in it that made up a golden Bible. And this was the thing that he was going to use. All right? Yeah? Did it, like, does he ever say like where where the golden plates originated from? Because they were buried somewhere. Did they just like appear buried or did someone bury them thousands? They had been buried in a box all the way back from when the ancient people left it there, the story of these people. And let me explain who these people are. They're the Nephites. In somewhere around 600 BC, these people were Jewish. They were Semitic and they basically left pre-exilic time, like before the exile, before the destruction, before the Babylonian, all that part, they left and came to America. Maybe South America. There's a dispute. Is it South America? Is it North America? But they came to the Americas. And the Book of Mormon is their story. It's their whole story of how they lived, and there was this fight between them and these other people. Okay, The other people eventually won over the Nephites, but because they were the evil people, they became dark Indians. Okay, Because they killed... These people, all right? There's all these different theories about how this happened, and the whole Book of Mormon is a long story that I can't go into, but that's when Jesus comes to America, that whole thing that Randy alluded to, which is Jesus comes to America to appear to them as part of the story in the Book of Mormon, okay? So the Book of Mormon is translated by Joseph Smith using the, either the Urim and the Thummim or the seer stone. There's different testimony about how he did it, but he would call out to people and they would translate the Book of Mormon. So let's talk about the Book of Mormon for a second. First of all, he said the Book of Mormon was in a, a language called Reformed, Reformed Egyptian. Okay, now we're talking about a Semitic people, Jewish, Hebrew, who speak Reformed Egyptian. And it's also said that there are four languages, he said, that they use. The Egyptian, the Chaldaic, the Assyriac, and Arabic. To prove this, the Mormon church says that he called out these things, he copied down some of the things off the golden plates, he handed it to one of the financiers of his project. That person went to a Columbia professor and showed it to him in ancient languages and said, please tell me that this is reformed Egyptian and please tell me that we've, you know, that we've translated this section correctly. The person said, 
absolutely, I've never seen a better translation in my life. When the professor heard that somebody was saying this about him, he published a letter that's pretty well documented saying this never happened. And I've got the letter if somebody wants to read it. Book of Mormon declares that the language in the Book of Mormon itself was not known to anyone. So it's really difficult to believe it might have been Egyptian. Randy, I think you asked whether he was trained in any languages. He wasn't. He just used the seer stone to call out what he had. We don't have the, the, the golden tablets to be able to see what was really on them anymore. They went back to the angel and only a few people were ever able to witness them. And most of them later recanted that they had actually seen them. In 1920, another version of the Book of Mormon was published and about 100 verses of it were changed. Okay, again, without reference to the tablets themselves, so you can see they're comfortable with changes that go along. And most of the witnesses who saw the tablets, which there were originally three, eventually, supposedly the three witnesses saw it, although one of them later wasn't sure what he saw. And two others, I think, had left. So there's, at best, it's unreliable what the three witnesses saw. But eventually they went back to the angel and nobody's had them since. So the Book of Mormon is a book of the history of these people. You'd be surprised that most of the doctrines of the Mormon church actually don't come from the Book of Mormon. I mean, some people wonder, what is the Book of Mormon? If it wasn't something that Joseph Smith received, you know, and had these golden tablets, then where did it come from? And some people have traced that there were a lot of kind of fictional writings at the time that sounded kind of biblical, that people were putting out for fun, and that he probably just picked up that style of literature and wrote a book that sounds kind of pseudo-biblical, like almost imagining what would happen if the biblical accounts actually then transferred to America. You could see it's a very Americentric view, like the world revolves around America. In fact, in Mormonism, the New Jerusalem will be in Missouri, I think. It's going to be, everything's in America. Okay? So their belief is all very centered on America. You know, another God bless America religion. Is it true the writings were lost or taken or something and then God sent him more plates and then... There were many plates other than the golden plates, apparently, and this is what really confused me. There were the brass plates. There were other plates that were found. He said at one point there were wagon loads of plates in different places that he was able to translate, which that part I just started, like, I, there's just too much research to start getting to, like, what are all the other plates? But the Book of Mormon comes from these golden plates. There were 116 pages that he translated from the Book of Mormon that were lost. They call, they're called the lost pages. What happened was he dictated them to his friend. His friend lost the pages. Okay? And his friend was really upset and asked him, why don't you just dictate them again? And he said, nope, once they're, like, once they're translated once, I can't translate them again. Which a lot of people speculate that maybe his fear was his friend really had them <laughs> and wanted to see if he could remember what he said because it should be the same. Yeah. Isn't it true that his parents didn't believe him? I don't know if his parents didn't believe him, but they had to move because the entire town signed a declaration that everything about it was wrong. <laughs> He had a reputation for being a guy who exaggerated and wasn't trustworthy and already had this occult practice of looking for treasure. So he was already kind of on the, yeah. So they had to move a number of times. I heard that, that Joseph Smith got caught cheating on his wife like a 15-year-old, and so he blamed it on God saying he could have multiple wives to save his marriage. There is evidence that Joseph Smith was having an adulterous affair before the doctrine of polygamy was actually announced. I don't know if it was with a 15-year-old. I don't know if he blamed God, but I do know that that was evidence. In the Book of Mormon, it, it says no polygamy. And then later on, polygamy is allowed. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe because he was having the affair and wanted to have more people. But not polygamy is allowed. In fact, later on, polygamy may be even commanded. So internally, you've got these issues and these problems that come up. Look at some of these things right here. I'm just going to point out a couple of them. 
The Nephites apparently were some of the coolest people that ever lived as pre-exilic Jews. They had windows, steel, a compass, elephants, silk, wheat, barley, oats, millet, rice, cattle, pigs, chicken, horses, donkeys, and camels, all of which did not exist in the New World before 1492 and the introduction of Columbus, some of which didn't exist until much later. So you've got things that never were in the Americas that were written in the Book of Mormon, like how they sailed across the seas using compasses and windows, like which didn't exist. You know, how they had silk and elephants in the New World, which never existed. Horses, I mean, all this stuff was not here. It's possible they could have seen camels before they came over, but some of these things like silk and chickens and all those things, like not even something in the New World at all. Those were introduced when the Europeans came over. Okay, Smithsonian Institute couldn't find any evidence in the Book of Mormon when they read it that any of this matches the archaeological record of the Americas at all. Okay, there's too many contradictions to mention, but there's the one at the bottom. Like in the Book of Mormons, no polygamy. Doctrines and covenants, it's actually expressly commanded. So I don't know what to make of it. I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. I'm just going to tell you that Joseph Smith made numerous prophecies, and many of them, in fact, all of them, to our knowledge, did not come true. One of the famous ones he made is in 1832, he predicted the Civil War. He said that South Carolina would secede and the world would basically come to a world war over it. That Britain would get involved. That it would be the end of, the, of civilization as we knew it. Well, in 1832, most of the newspapers already knew that if there was going to be a cessation, it would probably be South Carolina already. So it wasn't like this was news to anybody. He made the prediction. Most of it did not come true. In fact, that's one of the embarrassing things they try to cover up is he constantly made these prophecies that didn't come true. Here's another one. He claimed that the New Jerusalem would be built, as I told you, it was probably, I think, somewhere in Missouri or Illinois. He had this place set out. No, I'm sorry, it's Independence, Missouri. He had a place picked out for the New Jerusalem. And he said, this generation's not going to pass until this happens. It's not there. It never got there. You know what the biblical test is for a prophet. I mean, in fact, Deuteronomy is very clear. Test a prophet. If anything he says is not true, you know what you're supposed to do with the prophet. What are you supposed to do? Kill him. Kill him. You know, so like, if you just, there's, there's some troubling parts of it that establish, like, if this is the prophet, use a biblical test for prophecy. If anything they say is not true, they're not a prophet. I just want to actually close with this. Joseph Smith's story is that an angel appeared to him and told him where the plates were buried, and then using a bunch of occult seer stones, he was able to translate the Book of Mormon. And I want you to remember that Joseph Smith ended his life this way. He was in a town, and they were criticizing Mormonism at the local newspaper. They had set up an organization just to show that Mormonism was false. Joseph Smith and another person basically, for lack of a better word, destroyed that, that publication. And they were in jail awaiting trial for this act of shutting down this critiquing organization. And while they were in jail, they were lynched, effectively turning Joseph Smith into a martyr for the Mormon faith. I just want to read this verse to you so that you can look at it from Galatians. So there's Joseph Smith, and here's the book of Galatians. Paul writing, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what is within what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And I went looking just to make sure that that was in the online version. 
in the King James, and it's there. And I thought, how strange it is, and what does it take for us in dialoguing with people to be able to say, maybe this isn't, we're going to start off with, hey, you're preaching a different gospel, you should be condemned. You know that the whole reason we're doing this is try to find some ways to talk to people who believe differently than we do. But it just seems strange that when you claim this to be part of the scriptures of your church that you wouldn't even realize that if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel different than what's contained in our scriptures, that you should be on notice. The end of the book of Revelation says the same thing, like no one should take away from what's written here, and no one should add to what's written here, lest all of those plagues come down on them. And it's funny that in the Joseph Smith version of the Bible, there are 45 changes just to the book of Revelation alone, as if like he didn't read that chapter about not taking away or adding to it. I don't have any explanation for that, but I'm going to leave it there. And Maybe if we are lucky enough next week to talk to somebody with this background, maybe we can understand some of it and ask some intelligent questions for next week. Let's pray. Lord, take away any notion of pride that we may have right now. It's always easy when you go after somebody's faith beliefs and show the inconsistencies to feel like, well, we've got it right and we should feel better about ourselves. But Lord, this is not really about us. This is about those people who, who believe they know the truth, Lord, and may not have it. So Lord, our prayer tonight is for them. You're a great God who's brought back many movements back and called to you. Will you do that now? Could we be brave enough to pray, Lord, that you would even work in the hearts of people? Yes, Lord, even in the Mormon church to call people back to you, to the real truth. And Lord, can we also realize that when people ask us difficult questions, often we crumble ourselves. May we be students and disciples of your word and your scripture so that we can, can explain to people the hope that we have in you. And do it always, Lord, in gentleness and respect. Pray this in your name. Amen.